Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I'm proud to feature Lisa Corinne Davis. She is a Brooklyn-based painter best known for paintings and works on paper that resemble multi-layered maps with encoded narratives. Her practice explores the complex relationship between race, culture, and history, and with it, ideas about classification and contingency, the rational and irrational, chaos, and order. Her paintings have been exhibited across the United States and in Europe, and she is well-liked by the press, including The Telegraph, Art News, Art in America, The Philadelphia Inquirer, and The New York Times. Lisa's work is included in many prestigious private and public collections, and she is a recipient of numerous awards and fellowships. In 2017, she was inducted as a National Academician at the National Academy Museum and School. Lisa taught at the Yale University School of Art and is currently a professor of art and head of painting at Hunter College. She has an upcoming solo show at the Pamela Salisbury Gallery and will be appearing in a film about MFA programs by the same producer of The Price of Everything, as well as a film for PBS about North Brooklyn artists. Thank you for joining the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast and enjoy this interesting conversation with Lisa Corinne Davis. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I appreciate the time. Uh, you have a very impressive um, background as an artist. And so let's dive in. And please tell us, when did you discover your artistic passion? Oh, it's a, it's a day I'll never forget. It was second grade. And I had a teacher who sent us outdoors to paint the landscape. And she gave us a sponge and some tempera paint. And somehow the translation of that landscape to the page blew my mind. Um, um, I still have this painting to today. And I, I would like to think it was genius at work, but there was perspective. Somehow I figured out the trees in the back should be smaller and the ones in the front. And of course the sponge she gave us was a good imitation for foliage. And it was uh, truly like a miracle to me that I could represent what I was looking at. And, um, and so that was it. I was off to the races after that. And it's wonderful that you still have it. That meant that your parents appreciated this passion that you had and they wanted to save it for you because they could have just thrown it away. That, that's a very good point. I've never thought about it in that way. I mean, it's in very bad shape. It's on brown paper, 
But I, I use it as the first, when I lecture, I mean, I, people are probably cringing in their seats because they think, oh, she's going to go from 19 whatever to now, and this is going to be the longest lecture on the planet. But, 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 I, but I use it as a way of, um, you know, um, just describing that passion for finding mechanisms to talk about things. And, um, but yeah, back to my parents. Um, my father died when I was very young, but my... Um, mother had a real appreciation for art, even though, um, you know, she was a lawyer and an educator. Um, she, you know, she appreciated it and she saw value in it and certainly, um, you know, on occasion would paint herself. Um, you know, they weren't so great, but she really had a, you know, a knack for wanting to make things. And, uh, so yeah, I, I never thought about the storage of that painting, but she must have saw it as something that I'd want someday. Right. No, that's special. That's special. So you started off as a landscape painter, artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Weirdly enough, yeah. <laughs> and uh, did you ever, as a child, did you ever dabble with figurative or did you always lean towards abstract? No, no. I mean, I think that when you're young, you know, when you're in school, you know, teachers set up still lives and you know, assignments are always go home and draw yourself and draw your friends. And, you know, I worked uh, figuratively, uh, you know, into um, undergraduate school. So um, abstraction came later for me. Mm -hmm. And what brought on that change? Well, I think partly the times. I think that was the art of the moment in the, um, you know, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, as opposed to now, it's kind of turned back the other way. But I, but it was the art of the moment. And um, so I think you're always trying to connect when you're a student and be a part of what, what's au courant. But later, when I started finding, um, you know, content in my work, because you're kind of imitating for years, like trying to fit, you know, figure out who you are as a painter, um, I started dealing with issues of my own identity, you know, as a light-skinned black woman. And the work at the time was either figurative or very highly political. And neither were a fit for me. Um, uh, primarily the political work, you know, of, like I say, like an Adrian Piper, um, uh, as much as I love her work, it just felt like the issues I was soaring through were much more um, personal than political and much more felt than trying to change other people's processes. And was that a concept that was carried throughout your work for many years? Yeah, I would say from the time I um, was at the end of my undergraduate education at Pratt, and entered um, Hunter College, um, I was, you know, living my life, as many people are, um, having relationships, um, had friends, and the, the, the thing that always kind of got slipped in there at one point or another was, well, well who, what are you? And, you know, which I found really kind of a shocking question after you know people, like, why that wasn't a thing that people wanted to nail down when we're already friends and, you know, or lovers or whatever. And, um, and it came 
for me to be uh, a kind of cultural uh, safe spot that people want labels in order to feel secure. Like <laughs> then they can do with that label what they may, but they, they needed the label. So that kind of security of identity under a label just didn't fit for me. I mean, um, you know, yes, according to the laws of the United States from back when whatever, I'm black, but you know, I had two black parents, but I also um, had, was educated in white private schools and grew up partially in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So my cultural understandings and what makes me as a person are a complex mixture of all those things. <laughs> and um, so I felt that the, that story translated better to abstraction, to senses of like senses of location, um, senses of disorientation, asking the viewer to construct a meaning seemed to make more sense. Can you elaborate on that? How, how viewers, how do they comprehend or understand what the artist's message is or what the artist's feelings are mm -hmm. in an abstract work? I mean, figurative work, it doesn't challenge your mind as much to think about what it represents. Mm -hmm. But with abstract work, it's a lot of confrontation and you know, just spending time thinking about it. So right. give me and, and, and listeners some guidance on looking, feeling, analyzing a figurative work versus an abstract work. Yeah, so um, I just think in general terms, representation deals with exterior things that you're representing to depict something. So um, the outside characteristics or the clothing or the location. With abstraction, we're dealing with things, elements that we have feelings about, so that exist in the world. So for example, when we see geometry and ruled lines and primary colors, we think of that information as more factual. I mean, and, and in the world, it operates that way, like in maps and graphs, etc. cetera. Um, when we see spills and organic forms and more toxic colors, we think of biological instances and more psychological instances, and we don't translate that to maybe factual information. So, I play upon these things that we feel is, is noted in geometry versus organic forms. I feel I play upon color that we trust as fact and color that we feel is intuitive. And I mix these things together so that the viewer hopefully doesn't know which way to go. <laughs> and and it all lives within the habitat of something that pseudo looks like a map or an aerial view or a, you know, a, a location of sorts, but doesn't play by the rules of what a map guides us to do. So I think when we look at abstraction in general, we are, we are looking at things that are coded in the world and we do have feelings about them. And thus, um, again, like I'm interested in you know, for myself in the narrative of the feeling of uh, race or identity as more um, 
personal and maybe less on uh, on firm ground. So that that's what I'm trying to play with. Do critics understand your work? I think they do. I've never found a um, educated audience or meaning art educated, um, like, you know, critics and other artists or um, kind of a layman, not very quickly say, oh, I'm I'm looking from above or this is a map or and, and then and slowly really unravel on um, the pieces like I, I just um, was filmed for a film that's coming up on PBS and the people working on the film got the work very quickly. So I, I, I felt good about that. Um, again, it's not, it's supposed to set up questions more than give you answers. Hmm. And they, they kind of quickly get what the questions are. So when you're creating, do you think about who your audience might be? Never. No. <laughs> I, I just can't. Um, no, I never do. I, I'm thinking about how to how to tell this personal story better. It's all for myself. It's like, how can I get this clearer? How can I get this psychological space that I live in to feel um, more complete, you know, as a painting? So I don't think about my audience at all. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing, but, um, you know, but I don't. Yeah, that's fine. I get different answers when I ask that question. <laughs> so as a young person, can you recall an artist or a body of work, a sculpture that influenced you? I can't think of one body of work, but I can think of places I went that, uh, so I grew up in Baltimore and I would go to the Baltimore Museum often, and I would see the the um, cone collection there. So I um, I love the sense of gallery spaces. I love the sense of the, the in those days the emptiness of a museum, and I loved um, the idea that there were these stories being told. Um, as paintings in general. That was more important to me growing up, I think, than individual artists. So you're a fine artist, impressive artist, but you also teach. Um, you currently teach at Hunter College full-time. You've taught at Yale, very impressive. So share with us that part of your life and what that life has been like during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, okay. So... Um, I mean, teaching is the greatest job I love to dislike. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, and before I get to the pandemic, I guess I, what I mean by that is like, it's such a privileged place to be able to teach. And as I get older, it's more of a privileged place, meaning that I get to bear witness to younger thinking and younger culture and I can't think of how I would get that access without being in the classroom. So that is helpful for me in, in, in being clear on how the world is changing and how young people see the world changing in ways that maybe I don't see it changing in the ways they do. And so that's like really important. And certainly when I started up at Yale, 
I was really not even painting then. I was really more doing works on paper that were drawing based, still representational, by the way. And um, and I learned a lot. Like th these are some serious painters there. And so I was, as I was teaching, I was learning. So I was. It was kind of a reciprocal relationship in my mind. I, I don't think they knew that, but for me, it was. Um, you know, the pandemic has been really hard for my students and um, probably more than it's been hard on me. I mean, I've lived long enough that I've gone through things like 9-11 and, you know, where I lived near the World Trade Center at the time. And, and I know what it's like to stop working for a while, question art, question art's role, question the economy around art, um, think that I should be doing something more substantial to save the world or, or deal with the problems of the world. So I've been through that before. They hadn't. And so all those issues came up for them. And, um, and they couldn't for a while figure out a way to keep making work, you know, because studios were shut down like you, you don't need a studio to make artwork you just need a space and you need some supply and so maybe stepping outside of your normal routine would be good so um so i kind of had to change my graduate course in the middle of the semester to something that was slower and more reflective and which was really hard for them to adjust to but in the end they did and i think they understood the value of that um, but they're anxious, you know, they're, they're back this semester so far, but they're, um, they've adjusted and they're determined and they're ambitious, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're more nervous about this world that they're chosen to enter. Right. So when you spoke about 9-11 mm -hmm. and how it impacted you as an artist, did you feel that, that that influenced them, that they could draw from that and really appreciate what you and other artists had experienced during the time and what a tragedy like that, how it actually impacts your creativity. I, I don't know if they, they understand the stories. I mean, I mean, I certainly, they read about, you know, we were handing out readings about artists during war times, et cetera. They, they understand it. I mean, something about like going for me, going through 9-11 is like, I thought I could rationalize it day by day, week by week, month by month. But there was a lot going on inside of me that I just couldn't put into words. I just couldn't really process in real time. And I think that hap ha is happening to them too. So even though intellectually they understand, there's a lot of stuff going on that will take maybe years for them to fully understand and know what to do with. And I think that's what they're going through right now. As a painter first and an academic second. Thank you, Phyllis. <laughs> what, what do you feel your role is to people who are not artists, for people viewing your work? And maybe actually I should say for artists also. Okay, yeah. I think artists are are telling the story of their given time. We're cultural speakers. So we are visually processing the cultural time we live in and how we navigate that individually. So it's like an individual 
navigation to a cultural moment. So, and we can't, you can't get rid of that cultural moment. It exists as a platform. It's how you navigate it. So just like any artist in the Renaissance was dealing with science and math and therefore perspective in the work. But artists that were questioning philosophies or, or religion at the time knew how to use the standard cultural platform, let's say perspective for visual art, to upend or question their feelings about other cultural norms like religion or society. So I was just speaking this week in class about um, Veronese, you know, who all the perspective in his paintings are kind, is, is kind of a kilt, you know, like it's tilted, it's not straight, it's not going to a point. So he's upending and making, you know, questions of, in this particular series of um, the idea of the roles of men and women in relationships, mm-hmm. you know, kind of not steady because he's not doing it the way he's supposed to. These are his thoughts about the role of women in, in love relationships, that he thinks they're not so powerlessness. There's not, they're not without power. And so he has to navigate that system perspective to talk about his personal feeling about the role of women. And so um, I think we all do that. I mean, through the history of art, we've done that. And um, that is our role, is to, to have, a, have opinions about the norm. Mm-hmm. Art does save us, and art will save us. I'm really curious to see the type of art that is, you know, that we start to see in 20, 2021. Um, sure. You know, it's going to be really interesting. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so you have show coming up, correct? Next month, October? I do. It opens at October 9th at Pamela Salisbury Gallery up here in Hudson, New York, where I currently am. And uh, she opened the gallery, unfortunately, in March. And so um, she had to close it down two weeks later, um, but has managed to keep it going. Uh, Pamela used to be with the um, New York Studio School and ran the gallery there and worked for David McKee before that. So and is a painter too. So she's an interesting combination of knowing the art business and understanding what it's like to be an artist. And the shows have been super interesting so far. So I'm excited to be opening there soon. That's fantastic. Can you share anything more about the show with us? Uh, It's called All Shook Up. (laughs) And back to what we were just talking about. I mean, not only is that a song, but uh, it's uh, obviously... Uh, has many meanings for me. It's the uh, the basis of the lack of uh, stability in my paintings, but it's also commenting on our current time. So, um, so that's my little cheeky way of um, nodding to working during this this COVID time. Um, and um, there'll be uh, about uh, eight or nine paintings, uh, not all new, but some of them done during. Uh, 2020 in, in the show. And I'm sure the gallery will hold virtual shows. Yeah, yeah. Been a, there's been a lot of virtual shows. I mean, I have to say that there's never, uh, there was very little stoppage for artists to keep 
making and showing during uh, this pandemic. And so um, I've been in a couple of virtual exhibitions, a lot of um, benefit exhibitions. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited that artists are not only promoting themselves, but helping institutions that need help at this point. Um, the Q Foundation is, is a benefit that's about to happen in a couple of weeks, and I have a piece in that uh, exhibition also. That's great. So when someone looks at your work, 2020 versus 2019, mm. how differently will they feel? I think it's a little more chaotic. I mean, when I, I mean, it's always hard to see what you're actually doing at the time. Um, but um, I think the work is a little more chaotic, um, a, um, a little harder to find a place to, to exist peacefully in it. Uh, the macro and micro is more zoomed out in the work. Um, so I think that's what's going on in it. Um, we'll see what I think, you know, six months from now. Right, exactly. In 2022, <laughs> 23, when we hopefully will be settled in. Yeah. So it's been great chatting with you. So my last question, and that is, let's say 2022, 2023. Mm -hmm. What is your view of where the art world could possibly be? Hmm. in the future. Yeah, I, I have been thinking about this. Um, I wonder about the role of the commercial gallery anymore. Um, uh, I say that because I think the platform of Instagram has given artists um, a lot of visibility. Uh, I know for myself, I don't post that often, but certainly it has attracted collectors I would have never met. Hmm. I mean, various collectors. So, um, so that kind of cuts out the middleman, which is the commercial gallery. And so um, I'm just wondering how that's gonna play out as more and more artists are um, being contacted directly. And, and I know some of these collectors don't wanna deal with the gallery. So that's a question I'm having about the commercial gallery going forward. And I'm kind of curious since all the fairs have been um, and are being done virtually, I'm wondering how that's going to shift potentially the art fair. Um, I, I mean, I know everyone, not everyone, I know people love, that love to go to art fairs, love the social aspect, the party aspect, the seen and be seen aspect, but you know, some people just want to buy. And so right. I and don't want that aspect. So I'm just curious how the fairs are going to shift slightly or not um, based on this. Um, that's another question I have. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I am looking forward to the day when we can all enjoy art in person. Uh, yeah. Something tells me the art world is going to be lit up exciting and everybody's going to be yes let's celebrate so i look forward to that but i know it's no time in the near future but uh, thank you so much lisa for your time oh thank you phyllis it's great to meet you and to talk with you thank you and i'm going to encourage all the listeners to make sure that they view your uh, show online and uh, and look at your work great thank you and actually the show, just to be clear the show in hudson it will it's not online it's real so um you can come to the gallery if you Oh, that's fantastic. That's good to know. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.